0: This episode is made possible by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, working to build a more healthy, just, and inclusive future for everyone at czi.org.
1: Conspiracy theorists believe 5G may have some connection to COVID-19.
2: Will a high heat blow dryer kill coronavirus? Elderberry, even garlic, as cures for COVID-19. The centers
3: for- if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you're likely hearing some wild claims about the coronavirus. Bill Gates is spreading this virus to implant microchips in our heads. And because social media is largely unregulated and lots of people are consumed by fear these days, conspiracy theories and myths are flourishing.
2: It's a nonstop hurricane of misinformation and disinformation to debunk a mountain of work that's not humanly possible to keep up with.
3: What makes misinformation so complicated is that it's often not as simple as true or false. On this episode, we talked to a couple of journalists about how they tried to fact check some of the claims about the pandemic's origin.
2: Is the Wuhan coronavirus a biological weapon? Was it built in a lab by scientists and unleashed on the masses? Or was it created in a lab and leaked by mistake?
3: And we hear from a scientist about why we have such a hard time separating fact from fiction in the first place.
1: We are total reactionaries. Yeah, psychologically, we react, we do not reflect.
3: From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm John Yang.
2: We ready to go? I think so,
0: yeah. Yep, I, uh, I'm i rolling. Great.
2: That's
3: Alex Kasprek and Doreen Marchioni, who work for Snopes.com, a fact-checking
0: website. Uh, I've been at Snopes since October 2016, so uh, sort of right...
3: Alex is their science guy. He's written for lots of places, including NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's one of just six reporters at Snopes. And Doreen has worked in newspapers her entire adult life. She's the managing editor.
2: We started a little over 25 years ago, and uh, we really focused on goofy, weird, bizarre, urban legend kind of stuff. And then after 9-11, the conspiracy theories flooded in. And we suddenly started doing what you and I would call news by covering fairly serious hardcore conspiracy theories related to Islamophobia and such. And I like to think of Snopes as kind of a cross between Ripley's Believe It or Not and 60 Minutes. I like that. And I'm owning that.
3: And Alex and Doreen say this global pandemic is unlike anything they've ever faced how has the sort of the scale of misinformation and the scale of requests you've been getting to check things out how has that changed with the yeah. pandemic
2: what would otherwise be a normal volume grew by 10,000 yeah. right and it's all related to covid So it's just like a tsunami of requests. I I mean, it's
0: been insane. It's just been been, absolutely absolutely insane. It's
2: absolutely crazy. And you feel underwater every minute of the day.
0: (laughs) It almost feels just like we're picking apart a mountain rock, you know, stone by stone.
3: Requests started flooding into Snopes in January, asking them to look into the origins of the coronavirus.
2: We were already getting hundreds of emails. The reader queries were sort of all over the place. They ranged from, quote, China stole it, end quote.
3: From the early days of this pandemic, a widespread theory has been that the virus started spreading in a seafood market in Wuhan, China. But there was another theory picking up steam, one you've probably heard by now, that the virus came from a lab in Wuhan. We've done some reporting on that ourselves.
2: There have been reports U.S. diplomats are concerned about a lab in Wuhan, China, the city where the outbreak began.
3: And that theory has two threads. One, the virus escaped from a Wuhan lab accidentally, and another more sinister one that the virus was engineered as a bioweapon. As a scientist, Alex Kasprak was skeptical, especially about the bioweapon theory, but it quickly became impossible to
1: ignore. The deadly coronavirus could be a biological weapon gone out of control.
3: COVID-19 emerged from a laboratory. Originated in the Wuhan lab.
0: Why would you create a dangerous pathogen like that?
1: China may have engineered the coronavirus as a bioweapon.
0: The first push of the theory was very fringe. It started in sort of anti-vaccine circles and sort of Alex Jones conspiracy style uh, YouTube videos and podcasts.
3: Prepare yourselves for the ultimate smoking gun. Alex Jones is a conspiracy theorist who runs the website Infowars. He's best known for his claim that the Sandy Hook school shooting was a hoax. If you're a new listener, you're tuning in and you're hearing me say that Communist China at the Wuhan laboratory produced this man-made bioweapon. Before long, the theory that the virus came from a lab was floated by Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. He's a Republican on the Intelligence Committee. Now, we don't have evidence that this disease originated there, but because of China's duplicity and dishonesty from the beginning, we need to at least ask the question to see what the evidence says. and China That question wound up consuming Alex's life for two weeks as he investigated the claim, dug through documents, and desperately tried to stay ahead of the story.
0: So, I, you know, one of the first things I try and do is, if it's possible, is see if I can figure out who originated the claim is the first thing, and then who pushed the claim, who made it, who amplified it. it oftentimes it's the same people. Right. It's not always...
3: In this case, Alex started with a paper. Really, it's more like an article. Just
0: over a page long, written
3: by Chinese researchers and posted online.
0: There was nothing scientific about it. It went viral and then, (laughs) you know, two days later uh, it was retracted, which is misleading because you can't retract something that was never, um, never published in the first place.
3: But the theory took off anyway, partly because people were repeatedly citing the paper as evidence that the coronavirus originated in a Wuhan lab. The authors insinuate that because the lab was close to the seafood market, it must be the source of the coronavirus. They backed that up with a Google map
0: screenshot. So they throw this Google map or or they do map in the, the thing upload it to this thing that is not a journal, that has no peer review and- uh, And
2: call it science. And they
0: call it science, yeah. And it used the phrase, something to the effect of the hand of a human design is present here or something. That's the most likely scenario is how they concluded based on their Google map data. So that's the first bit of evidence that people really lobbed onto is the proximity, the lab and the fact that something described as a scientific study mentioned that proximity.
3: But there's another issue. Alex found reason to question whether the pandemic even started at the seafood market.
0: Sort of the first cohort of patients that, that the Chinese government reported publicly when they first published a study of the first 45 cases. Like a third of them had never been to the market in that period of time. So, so
3: using- And what about the theory that the virus was engineered as a bioweapon? Alex looked into one of the claims behind it, that COVID-19 was designed in part by inserting genetic sequences derived from HIV.
0: But uh, there's no HIV genetics that have anything to do with COVID-19. So if you're you're looking to create a weapon and you have the science that we have access to, you would not have created this. So that's another problem.
3: In fact, the U.S. intelligence community has now concluded that the virus was not
0: man-made.
3: But Alex had to answer another question people were suspicious about. Why would China be researching
0: coronaviruses at all? The reason China has, is partaking in all this research in the first place is a result of the first SARS outbreak, which was also caused by a coronavirus, Mm -hmm. um, which also infected uh, humans via the same chemical in in their blood, ACE2. Mm -hmm. So all of these sort of breathless claims like, oh man, did you realize they were doing research on coronaviruses (laughs) that bind to ACE2 that could be transferred from animal to human? It's like, yes, I did know that. That's the point. That's why the Chinese government was funding that research. And that's why the U.S. government was funding that research. It's why U.S. and Chinese researchers both worked in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, So basically, the scientific consensus at this point is, you know, we don't know where or from what this thing came from.
3: Right. On April 1st, Snopes published Alex's findings. But unlike many of his fact checks, Alex didn't give the theories a straight
0: true or false rating.
3: I mean, it sounds like you're were trying you trying to prove a negative. You're trying to
0: prove this did not happen. Ultimately, that's why it's not a, a true or false fact check. But it does seem inevitable to me that uh, it'll be a recurring feature, recurring topic of the 2020 election. And I'm sure that uh, as that progresses, new dubious claims uh, will come up and new evidence may or may not come to light and... Uh, I can't imagine I won't be addressing aspects of the story, at least, sometime in the future.
3: Since Alex's report came out, there's been plenty of new information people have used to both support and contradict the theory that the virus leaked from a lab in Wuhan. It's something even President Trump has been asked about. Have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And and what gives you a high degree of confidence that this originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? I can't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you
1: that.
3: And the idea that Alex didn't flatly say true or false is proof that in today's world, even facts aren't always black or
2: white. The world of truth, is pretty gray and of course I couldn't have anticipated in my youth living in the era that we're living in right now, uh, which feels like whatever the cliche is, post-fact, post-truth, that people believe and will something strong enough, they think that can make it fact. It's just crazy upside-down times we're living in.
3: For Doreen and Alex, the responsibility of seeking the truth weighs heavy.
0: I'm sort of battling my own demons and thinking like I need to get this out as soon as possible with the stress of knowing that if i misfire, if i get it wrong um i will be just eviscerated by a lot of people who do not like fact-checking organizations
3: right in terms of sort of the 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 stress you felt the pressure you felt has any story compared in terms of the stress and the 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 burden you were feeling on this one yeah
0: yeah you know, it's hard to say because everything seems like the most important thing on the internet at that at that moment. But yeah, this one this one sort of killed me. like I like submitted it and passed out on my bed and stared at the wall for a couple hours.
2: <laughs> Alex is a world- class fact checker. He's kind of teasing about these stories really draining him and wiping him out. As his manager, I actually, take that super seriously. And I, I do frankly worry about his health. Uh, I worry about all of our staffers' health because they are awash in every day, every hour of every day, in some of the most insidious, vulgar, homophobic, racist, misogynistic yeah. misinformation on the web. And it we are human, right? This, this has to take a psychological toll
3: but my conversation with Doreen and Alex still left me wondering: Why do so many of us fall for misinformation in the first place? So, David, thanks so much for doing this. I have not
1: a, a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
3: So, I reached out to David Robert Grimes at his home in Dublin, Ireland. David wrote the book *The Irrational Ape* about our inability to think critically, and has continued to study why people fall for misinformation around COVID-19.
1: So tell me, David, you're a cancer researcher, or were a cancer researcher, is that right? Well, I, I still am, uh, for my sins, but I, I, dabble, I dabble in a lot of other things as well, I suppose. Including trying to
3: understand why people fall for conspiracy theories and misinformation.
1: Absolutely, and there actually is quite a logical link that is probably not immediately apparent, but exists. A lot of my work in cancer science... I'm communicating with the public about cancer risk or treatments. And whenever you do this, you inevitably come across someone who will tell you that the secret cure for cancer that the FDA have hidden or that their local acupuncturist knows someone who knows the cure for cancer. And invariably, this becomes a conspiratorial discussion. Let's talk about what's going on now with the coronavirus. What are some of the
3: most outlandish things that you've heard about the coronavirus, the things that make you roll your eyes and slap your forehead? Pretty much everything. <laughs> so why would people want to believe that this—that the coronavirus was man-made in a lab in China?
1: Well, it takes the randomosity out of it, doesn't it? And suddenly, instead of going, you know, okay, the emergence of a A species jumping virus is the odds of that happening are low but because we're infinitely rolling the dice it inevitably happens the idea that can all happen by chance terrifies people the idea that we uh, we suddenly lose all this control it is easier for some people to believe that there is an architect of all this Uh, perversely that is more reassuring to some people than the fact that we don't have that much control like That the world is effectively random and sometimes random events happen and they impact us in a huge way. If you believe that you know something and that you know something about this, you know, random event, like say, be it cancer or something, then you feel that you're protected against it. If you have the special knowledge, you don't feel vulnerable to it. When in reality, you're as vulnerable as anyone else.
3: How much does fear make people more susceptible
1: Oh, fear. fear is a fantastic you know, um, accelerant of, of falsehood. For example, we have found, and we have good evidence, that if you want to uh, perpetuate a story, you should use scary claims in it. It will spread far faster. And that's because we have a human urge to try and find danger or we remember things that stick in our head. And intuitively, conspiracy theorists and, say, anti-vaxxers, they know this. They're not spreading positive news they're spreading terrifying claims because fear makes us malleable to suggestion and to alternative and it also makes it sticks in our brain far more than sober-headed reality so anecdote and fear are two things that can do a lot of damage because humans we disproportionately accept them over maybe the more dry academic findings that might say the exact opposite
3: psychologically we're hardwired for this
1: We are total reactionaries. Yeah, psychologically, we react. We do not reflect. And unfortunately, social media pretty much appeals to that reaction part of us. And in fact, news stories that go viral, um, a fitting term, perhaps with the COVID-19 stuff, uh, we find that the clickbait headlines, the scary, simplistic, the things that stick in your head, they get shared so much more than someone who wrote a considered New York Times piece on it. You know, like that is... (laughs) And it's not to do with how highbrow or lowbrow one is. it's how much it sticks and how much it it engages you in that visceral level.
3: and I'm also interested in you say that in some cases, they're trying to understand something that may be very difficult to understand, and so they they glom on to these simple conspiracy theories.
1: absolutely. Now you can kind of see the allure of that very quickly. Um, And without getting too political, I sometimes think that there is, you have a president that sometimes does this too. But one of the things that we have seen from the data is that often the times the people that opine the strongest, that hold the the most hardcore views on these things, are often the least informed. Um, And you see this, for example, with anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists. They've been studied quite a lot. All anti-vaxxers have to disregard copious amounts of scientific and medical data to believe in this. And when they're asked about, say, the link between autism and, say, vaccination, which has been debunked for many, many years, they both rate their knowledge of autism as high and their knowledge of vaccination as high. And when you objectively assess them, they are the least informed group, but yet they're the most confident group about it.
3: Let me ask you about another one that I find so fascinating because it's so bizarre, that Bill Gates is pushing vaccines because he wants to microchip everybody.
1: It's, again, a lot of these conspiracy theories have a veneer of something that sounds almost plausible until you think about it for more than 10 seconds and you go, what? Right? Bill Gates does actually fund a lot of vaccination drives and vaccine research because after clean water, there is nothing that saves more lives than vaccination. So it's an incredible humanitarian thing to do. But if you are in the conspiracy theory mindset and your anti-vaccine, that makes him villain number one. And you start, you know, and, and Bill Gates works with computers, and that's microchips. Suddenly, you have what looks like a narrative to preserve the hole you already made in that web. And this is why conspiracy theorists tend to not have one conspiratorial belief, but very, very many, and often very, very inconsistent ones.
3: How do you combat that? Because in your conversations with them, they're going to be very, very confident. They dig in. They believe they know better than you do. So how do you combat that?
1: It is about choosing your battles. You have a limited amount of energy to combat misinformation. Put it where it's going to count. It might make you feel good to have a screaming, blazing row on Facebook with your second cousin twice removed, but it's probably not going to do anything. And, always, and if you are having those kind of engagements, I put my effort into people that have heard these things and are not sure what to believe. People who might be afraid, people who might um, suddenly have a doubt sown in them because they read something on Facebook or something on on social media that has made them frightened. But if they are someone that you could reach, someone who is um, amenable to conversation, then have a conversation. And it doesn't have to come to a conclusion. You just plant the seed for them to go, "Eh, maybe my point of view is wrong, and to come from it on their own, not like feeling like they have a boot on their neck making them get to that solution.
3: You say you pick your fights are there some conspiracy theories
1: that you just you just don't want to fight
3: you just let the, let them believe
1: that i see i think that the pro, i mean i'm i'm kind of a purist on this i think that any conspiracy theory even if it seems benign is effectively damaging and that goes back to the the web of belief if you alter yourself enough to accept one you know superfluous explanation you're going to do it for other ones For years, we've had conspiracy theorists, um, but they've been relatively isolated in their own little cliques and they generally did no harm. We are living with the consequences of a social media age where these little echo chambers can now fortify themselves and amplify and evangelize far beyond the confines that they once could. And that is something that we, the one positive I can take from this is that we all immediately have to realize that our critical thinking skills are really subpar and the only vaccine we have against, you know, uh, devious thought and devious actions, and the charlatans and demagogues that would hurt us with it, is the shield of our own critical thought. And we have to work on that. There'll always be this amount who don't get it, but you just need to keep them below critical mass. There'll always be a fringe. That's fine. Let there be a fringe. We just have to stop the majority being affected by it. Hurt <laughs> immunity. Exactly. So it's like it's 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 and and social
3: media uh, is well, it's like the, the opposite of social distancing everyone
1: you're it sort of helps the spread. I think that the same way we're practicing physical hygiene and we're pressing social distancing to stop spreading the virus if we have it, we need to practice informational hygiene right one of things we do is when we come across a bit of information we need to treat it with a bit of distance because we're not sure if we should accept this um we need to put on our skeptical PPE so to speak and kind of say right before we spread information on before we click the share button before we retweet something we should ask is this legitimate and we should especially ask that if it chimes with our pre-existing prejudices So before I share a piece that might be slamming a political opponent I don't like, I should hold myself to the same standard I would hold an opponent and go, is this believable? Is this a legitimate source? Because while things might not harm us, they could harm someone else. So I do think we need to practice a form of informational hygiene if we are to survive the information age without tearing each other apart.
3: Great advice for all of us right now, David. Thanks for being with us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you want to see more on how misinformation is spreading during the COVID-19 pandemic, check out our broadcast story online at pbs.org newshour. This episode was produced by Sam Lane, Mike Fritz, and Vika Aronson, and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpeau. Production assistance from Bella Isaacs and Maya Lene Bura. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, and Nick Schifrin. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all of our coronavirus coverage on air and on our website, pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening.